0: Taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Steven Caradini. And today,
1: we have Reader Response. Whoa! Crazy.
0: Whoa! We're
1: really excited about it, actually. It's been really gratifying to see people get really interested in the things that we're talking about and debate them amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you have all of our permission and excitement and enthusiasm for doing whatever it is you do with our
0: commentary. It's true. So first bit from internet friend of mine, Andrew Fallows, he pointed out in response to our blogging piece a few weeks ago that the blog and social media situation is actually cyclical. And what he meant by that is people tend to interact on social media rather than on original posts. You know, someone shares something on Facebook or Twitter, and people respond there. And because they've responded there, then they don't comment on people's blogs, so blog comments get less traffic. And so people drop comments from their blogs, which reinforces the use of social media to comment and so on. This is a great point. A lot of times you'll see that cycle, and in fact, it's exactly the cycle I went through on my own blog. I had comments and increasingly found that almost no conversation was happening there. Instead, it was happening on Twitter or Facebook or app.net, and... Well, maintaining them technically was a bit of work, so I dropped that bit of work. And of course, that meant that the only place comments could happen were on social media and so on. And so there is a bit of a cyclical and reinforcing pattern there. So great feedback from Andrew Fallows, and thanks. And a second piece of commentary came from user
1: Phoneboy on app.net. And he pointed out that any number of folks doxed on Ashley Madison may not have actually been users of the site. Ashley Madison didn't verify email addresses, and some people may have signed up in a moment of weakness but never actually did anything on the site. So there's a lot more ambiguity than is being <laughs> mostly debated about in yeah. terms of who these people actually are who are being doxed and what their actual activities were.
0: Short version there is doxing is bad, folks, still. Doxing
1: is bad, still bad. Hacking, still bad. Even if Ashley Madison shuts down over this nonsense, it was
0: still a bad thing to do. (laughs) Indeed. Last but not least, and certainly not least hilarious, I got a feedback from another app.net user, Joanna, about an hour ago, who was catching up and listened to our mom memes episode and her comment, which was enormously gratifying and worth remembering. We spoke in broad generalities, but as she noted, some of us old ladies have been on the internet since before you and Steven knew it was a thing, young man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Called That's out. That's true. It is absolutely true. We're going to get some true. aloe vera for that burn. <laughs> we, uh, we appreciate the point, the point, and it is, it is of course, worth note that lots of people of all stripes have always been on the internet. Our Our point, of course, was merely and only that There are a lot more old ladies, as she put it, on the internet now than there were 20 years ago, for which we're grateful. But Grace Hopper was there. Women have been
1: part of computing for a long time. That's true. And with that, into the
0: show proper.
1: The episode. So before that, I have sort of a cold. So if I sound somewhat like a bass-heavy monster, that's because my voice is messed
0: up. Or it's because he's a bass-heavy monster. It's because... You will never know. What? 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 But
1: we're going to talk about handheld computing devices today, which you mostly know as phones, even though in a strict technological reading, most of the things that you do on your phone have nothing to do with telephony. (laughs) So we're going to talk about phones, particularly we're going to talk about how the ethics of buying them works. And this has become complicated in large part because T-Mobile did away with contracts and Verizon followed, showing that T-Mobile won the game. And that means that the subsidizing of phone costs, i.e., you can buy an iPhone for $199, is going to end. And so phones are going to cost what they actually are worth, which is, in some cases, five, six, seven hundred $700. You're going to have to buy that, and then you're going to have to then use a month-to-month contract. And there are ways that we'll get around this. People will parse out the payments over the life of the phone, yada, yada, yada. We're not going to talk about that. What we are interested in is I have a Galaxy S4. I think it's great. I think it does – pretty much everything I could ever ask a handheld computing device to do, and I don't see any reason why I would ever need to buy another phone. That's weird.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and of course, we'll note before we continue on that all of our European and other non-American listeners are just laughing at the fact that just now, unsubsidized devices and all of that are finally becoming a thing in the American market, we know. right. We know. know.
1: (laughs) But yeah, it's...
0: Bear with us. Bear with (laughs) us. (laughs) America is slow on this whole technological uptake of cell networks and the economics therewith, which is ironic and strange, we know, but anyhow. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. The upgrade cycle on phones for decades now, literally decades, has been... Every two years you get a new phone, and almost all of that was driven not because you actually needed one, but because if you were on a contract structured the way most American phone companies structured their contracts, you weren't going to be paying any less regardless of whether you got a new phone. Even though the price of a phone was bundled into your contract, when you had paid off the phone, you kept paying the same amount. This was a sneaky and clever way for companies like Verizon and AT&T to make gobs of money. And as a consumer, you were therefore incentivized to get a new phone. And for a long time, that meant you got a new flip phone for free or for 50 bucks or whatever it was. And you upgraded from one generation of Motorola Razor to another generation of Motorola Razr, et oh, Razor,
1: etc. Aw, that Razr, though.
0: That Razr. <laughs> My mm, wife had so several iconic. of them. So iconic. Indeed. And... Along the way, we made the transition to, well, as Stephen put it, handheld computing devices in which we married something like the dream that Palm had or BlackBerry had with really nice touchscreen user interfaces and extremely capable computing. And that's accelerated rapidly over the last decade or so, so that what we walk around with in our pockets now are in many cases, better computers than you could buy for a comparable sum of money a decade ago, which is astounding. But...
1: Man, let's take a, a slight side moment and just feel sad for research in motion. Like, let's, <laughs> Poor BlackBerry. Let's, let's just take a moment and realize that they were there first, and they couldn't get it done. Yeah. Like they saw the future. They literally saw the future.
0: And they failed. They failed. It was, it was a sad time. Except in India. <laughs> but yeah, we, we went through this transition where all of a sudden all those subsidies started being applied to basically computers. And unlike every other kind of computer, including tablets, we weren't paying for them directly or up front because it got lumped in with this weird way that we've been buying phones and cell phones for the last 20 years. And then T-Mobile said, this isn't really working for our bottom line let's try something else as a way of attracting customers. Well,
1: that, yeah, that that's the rub there. I don't think T-Mobile cared about their bottom line per se it was the fact that they were trying anything they could to steal customers off of the big guys and so naturally the third player or the fourth player or the fifth player, those are the people innovating in the space because mm-hmm. if you got two established giants then of course they're just going to punch each other repeatedly but the <laughs> third and the fourth They're going to be the people trying to make something out of the scraps and juice up the weird edges of the ecosystem and find all those extra marginal
0: costs. That's a perfect description of what T-Mobile has done over the last few years. Juice up the weird edges of the ecosystem.
1: There's a market-driven aspect to this in the very basic core tenets in that this is a market correction. Now, it's definitely not a stock market correction, but it's <laughs> the ways that the market is adjusting to a new space and
0: new players putting new techniques and strategies on the table. Mm-hmm. And overall, we think this is a great change. We think transparent pricing is good, and we may yep. actually come back to the theme of transparent pricing in its own episode. But right here, right now, we're just kind of hung up on the fact that I'm never going to be able to get Stephen to buy a different phone.
1: So, but it's it's so <laughs> interesting, because historically, when you were... At the end of two years, you were buying a quintessentially different phone. Mm-hmm. Your The technology was moving so fast that from 2004 when i got my first phone which was a nokia brick
0: god rest its soul
1: i ran that thing over with a car and it was alive
0: <laughs> i had a samsung that was the same you couldn't break yeah, it
1: it couldn't do anything to it from from 2004 when i had that to 2008 i mean we had we had moved light years ahead and then right. you jumped to 2010 and then you've jumped light years again, in 2012 to 2010, you're also moving so fast. Right. But that has slowed in that the phone that I can get now in the Samsung 5, the S5, is, for all intents and purposes of what I actually use the phone for, the exact same phone.
0: Right. Right. The improvements are no longer the massive leaps and bounds that they were early on. They're measurable, and they may be significant, especially in some of the secondary and apparently incidental, though not for everyone, qualities like camera quality and so on.
1: Right, which we've talked about before.
0: Yeah, we've wrapped up season one with talking about exactly that. With that, on the whole, if you're Steven Caradini, you probably don't use your phone that way. And if you're the vast majority of the population, you're not using your phone that way. And well, let's assume that you were even and that you really did care but you're looking and you're saying hmm it's going to cost me five six seven hundred dollars to get a new one of these i could probably wait another year or two or three because it's still going to keep working well and that's true regardless of whether you're an ios or android or windows mobile user i'm probably not going to upgrade from my iphone 5s anytime soon even though it's going to be fully two years out of date this year because you know what it works fantastically and it's got good support it does does the things i need it to and it gets security updates when i need them etc and that's enough and i have other things to spend my money on as long as this does keep working well and does keep getting security updates which in the ios ecosystem will be at least another two or three years Mm -hmm. i'm good Mm -hmm.
1: And that's definitely a point to discuss when you're looking at the differences between Apple and everybody else or Android and iOS is that there are so many different Android phones and there are so many different Android providers that security is a massive problem. There are so many different forks on Android and there are so many different convoluted ways that the various forks can get hacked Not even talking about if there's an attack on the main fork as recently was discovered. Mm -hmm. It takes such a long time to get all of the patches from Google to Android to the OEM to the carrier to the (laughs) customer that one of the main things that if I ever did switch to iOS would be because of – the fact that when the same problem was discovered on iPhone, they pushed out the patch in 48 hours to everybody. <laughs> we call that winning quickly. <laughs> we call that winning quickly. I got mine a month later. And that's where winning slowly is not a good thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you won way too slowly. <laughs> way, way, way too slowly. And and you were lucky to get a patch. Lots of the affected phones yeah. didn't and never will get patches. Yeah, and they're that's, retired. yeah. That's one of the things that's a little strange with these kinds of things, too. There are vulnerabilities that exist security-wise on phones, like receiving multimedia messages, that aren't quite the same on your laptop. There are plenty of security vulnerabilities on your laptop, don't get me wrong. right? But there are a whole new category of these things on mobile devices and different patterns of usage that make us more susceptible to certain kinds of attacks and so on. And being mindful of that, whatever you buy, whether you buy a Xiaomi phone from China, or you buy an Apple device, or you buy a Windows phone, God rest that soul. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, couldn't resist. I know Windows phone isn't technically dead, but... uh, You know, whatever you're looking at there, it behooves you to choose well, and to choose well for the longer term. As a consumer... We are now in a position where it's a lot easier to start making that good choice and good on T-Mobile for pushing everybody else this way because it does become much, much easier for consumers to make healthier choices about their purchasing here. And to recognize that, no, I don't actually need a new iPhone just because it's been two years. My current one works fine. Or maybe you're a techie and that's where you want to spend your money and you can do that without being charged extra through the nose because the way the contracts are structured etc right let consumers actually behave rationally and sensibly in a in a market what a crazy idea oh man so (laughs) there are externalities
1: on this situation as there always are it's becoming our new favorite word (laughs) or at least your new favorite word
0: (laughs) my new favorite word
1: i'm just i'm just i love it it's fantastic
0: mine is still interesting or maybe indeed so it's all good yeah, there you go. So
1: one of the things that's most concerning to me about this is because the hardware is not iterating as fast as it used to be, lots of OEMs, original electronics manufacturers, are laying off tons of people because they just don't need as many people to be making these very incremental changes as opposed to monumental changes to the way that the hardware of phones is working. And there's always been a race to the bottom in Android phones in terms of how they are sold and what they are being differentiated on, which is almost exclusively price. But now that that race to the bottom is slowing down in terms of the newest technology doesn't have the same attractive power as the phone that's already in someone's hand, there's a lot of jobs in hardware being lost. And there's been layoffs in a bunch of different major companies, hardware, particularly mobile hardware divisions. And so that makes me wonder where all these mobile hardware people are going to go, whether they're gonna go to small third-party companies and start iterating over there, or whether they're gonna move to 3D printers or some other corner of the hardware economy that is underpersoned and make some really cool stuff happen wherever they go. I'm I'm intrigued.
0: Right. One of the things that is easy to jump over that Stephen and I are very interested in, see, interested. It's always interested and interesting. One of the things we're intrigued by and one of the things we're thinking a lot about is how economies shift over time. So it's one thing to observe here as we have how the consumer side of this economy is shifting and will shift. And we're excited by that, as we've said. But sometimes these kinds of shifts go hand in hand with serious or significant losses in the production side of the industry. And we've seen this in many areas with the advent of computing and the advent of automation and robotics and all of these things where jobs that used to take many people now don't and of course this isn't a new story the same thing has happened before in the industrial revolution and in the printing revolution and this is not something that is a first-time event here as we hit it in the internet but it has happened particularly quickly here and we are interested in the question of how we should address the problems that can arise from that how should companies think about making those transitions in terms of helping workers whom they're laying off because they're being replaced by robots transition? And how do we think about economic structures and economic change in such a way that we recognize that there can be a really big human cost to some of these transitions and not assume that maybe we should just carry on because these things are inevitable. Well, they're not inevitable. They're choices that are being made by humans. And this mm-hmm. applies whether you're Uber trying to smash the taxi industry and ultimately replace all drivers with driverless cars, or whether you're Amazon wanting to ultimately get your factories populated entirely by robots and your deliveries done entirely by drones, or whether you're any company who's engaging in these practices, which are not McDonald's. in and of themselves. Yeah. They're not bad practices. They're in many ways relatively neutral. But they have consequences. And what are they? How do they play out? Yeah, you can't say they're relatively neutral and then they have consequences. (laughs) I mean, in many cases, they're morally neutral. They're not a good thing or a bad thing per se. Automating something isn't necessarily evil, but the way you go about it might be.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not, because to say that technology is completely intrinsically neutral means that there's no ways that are embedded in it that people have chosen to make you use it.
0: Right, and I don't agree with that. That's not how I mean that. I just mean that sometimes some of these things are not themselves inherently good or inherently bad. They may be producing change and some of them are inherently good or inherently bad. But not all technologies are. Shovels aren't inherently good or inherently bad in the ways that we're talking about here. But they're technological advance over not having a shovel. And then they do shape us. And they do have consequences in terms of how we structure our economic institutions and how we get calluses on our hands and the shapes of our shoulders after using them all. I mean, they shape us physically. And that that particular insight I, I owe to John Dyer in his book, From the Garden to the City. So right. so no, there's no such thing as a truly perfectly neutral technology in that sense. Right. All I mean is that doing things with robots isn't necessarily evil. But if we're going to do things that way, or if we're going to just end up having to lay off because we can't sustain our current profit levels, people from our factories, well... We should be evaluating how we should manage those layoffs and if we should manage those layoffs and how that fits in with our profit schemes and how that fits in with our overall conception of the roles of companies in markets and the roles of companies and markets in society more generally.
1: Right. You have somewhat of a point. But I think that if we know that a robot replaces a human in a job, then that isn't a value neutral machine. The way that's being employed has moved it from being a neutral machine to one that has, like you said, consequences. And those can be positive or negative. Now, the current valence of how that is employed varies by who's looking at it. So if you're the person whose job is getting replaced by a robot, that machine is evil. Like <laughs> it, is, it is taking something from you that you did not want taken from you. And that you were doing just fine before it showed up. You know, that's a thing. If you're looking at it in terms of this will increase our bottom line and profits and all of that, it's a good thing. Robots Mm -hmm. replacing humans is a good thing. And so I think that you really, really have to be careful about how you talk about technology when you start saying things like neutral and moral and values because the positionality – that you have related to the technology extremely changes the way that you look at it. Because right. there are some people that would argue by dint of the fact that we know that robots replace humans and that those humans by dint of the system we're in will not have an easy time of getting a similar job, they would argue that that makes the machine evil. That right? because of the system and because of the way that that machine is employed in the system, there's no morally positive way that you can employ that machine. That's an argument that people can make.
0: Right. Of course, you could make the same argument about machine tractors, which did the exact same thing to large swaths of workers in the United States in a past generation. And yet the net effect of that has been, and I say net because there was a very substantial human cost along the way, but the net effect has been that food is way, way cheaper. And On the whole, our society, including those least advantaged in our society, those most in need, have access to really high quality produce in a way they couldn't possibly have dreamed of 100 years ago. And that's part of what makes some of these things tricky, is you can't see how things are going to shake out in the long term. And so it's difficult to make pronouncements, even on how it will affect those people who are being let out of jobs in the next five to 10 years. But it's also difficult to make pronouncements about how it will affect economic viability of entire systems in the next 100 years. And we shouldn't be over swift to make judgments on those, but we should also be cautious because we can recognize that sometimes they will have deleterious consequences and we can't guarantee that those will be offset. And so we need to slow down a bit.
1: Yeah. From your perspective of 50 years, 75 years on, being able to get safe, cheap, regular fruit is is valuable. That's important. However, that was no fun for the farmer. <laughs> no. That got basically corporatized because that right. was the giant corporatization of farming. And enormously less people farm now than they did mm-hmm. because of that technology. They do certainly other things. But it's a loss that can't be returned. So if you just liked farming, like if that was your thing, you can't. I mean, now that we have the organic movement and we have small farms and there's a social Mm -hmm. marginal cost, people will pay more for things that were made on tiny farms or on (laughs) tiny in comparison to massive corporate farms. People will pay more for that. And so there was a market correction. But – Then you have to look at the types of people that are able to do that and Mm -hmm. the ways that things have transpired both class-wise and urban-wise because a lot of these farms are still servicing urban areas as opposed to the rural areas that they used to be located in. And so it gets really complicated. And so it's tough to evaluate any machine advance while it's happening. This is the story of science and technology studies, is that while something is happening, no one even knows what the technology really is, because it's still (laughs) being defined. It's still being defined socially, like, what does this mean? And so this podcast is contributing to what is a robot that replaces a human. And we think it's a complex, and I think it's more negative than you think it is, which is totally fine.
0: But... I don't even know if that's true. I just think I don't know. I don't think we know or will know in a lot of ways, and I think that, I I think that it is deeply negative now, but I think it may be a net positive in the long term, and that's the and and that we don't know. Yeah, I think
1: the fact that you still a lot for I don't know means that you see it more positively than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's quite what that possible.
0: Means. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before you go. The Atlantic did something really interesting last week and really closely tied to our topic of just a few weeks ago on blogging, which is they reintroduced blogging to their site. Uh, They opened a section called Notes, and they're inviting people to blog regularly. They've also tried something really, really different that I haven't seen anywhere else in terms of how they interact with and give voice to their audience, which is ultimately the goal of comments, but which most people have given up on, as we've talked about before. They're inviting you to email, and when they see emails that they think say interesting and insightful things, they post them on their site. Interesting point of note, I emailed them about RSS, because we think RSS is important, and it makes this available on the open internet, and they posted my email on their site. They're really taking this seriously, and we're really excited to see where it goes. Yep.
1: As one of Chris' friends put it, it raises the bar of effort for people to say stupid and demeaning things. And then it prevents readers from arguing with each other. And it lessens, but not completely, the anonymity of comment systems, which also has the effect of raising the bar of what people are willing to say. Finally, it also has a much stronger curatorial bent yeah. in that the editor can say, yeah. That's not going to go on the website. (laughs) And then no one has to see that. (laughs) Hooray. Hooray. (laughs) So the music this week was Pirates by Heptagon Heaven. You can find a link at the show notes, along with other links and notes
0: on this week's show at winningslowly.org slash 3.08. Thanks to Jeremy W. Sherman for sponsoring the show this month. You can find the full list of sponsors in the show notes. And if you'd like to support Winning Slowly, we would like it if you did. You can make a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash winning slowly, or you can always give directly to us at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. One of these days, I'm going to edit in a dollar sign sound. (laughs) Cha-ching! We will give 10% of any and all contributions that we receive to helping the Internet Archive prevent link rot, because we think that's important.
1: You can subscribe to the show in iTunes or on your favorite podcast app. You can also interact with us on Twitter or app.net at Winning Slowly or on our Facebook page for other content relevant to the show. Or just because you want to talk to us. That's true. That's true. And stealing a page out of that notebook from The Atlantic, we are instituting. You can shoot us an email at hello at
0: winningthroly.org. Woo! As always, thanks for listening. See you next week. That was a fun episode that totally went places I don't think either of us expected quite no. to go at the when we started recording.